Welcome to HedgePod, the podcast where we explain and explore the many ways that entertainment media, both consciously and unconsciously, reinforces the ideology of the ruling class. I'm Nova, my pronouns are he and him. I'm Athena, my pronouns are she, they. Our guest this week is the Lonesome Comrade of the Tech Believe podcast. It's great to be here. I'm Lonesome Comrade and my pronouns are they, them. And this week is part of the Star Trek month, which... Do not be surprised if it stretches longer than a month because there are so many good Star Trek episodes to get into, and they are a charming mix, I think, uh, of bathed and also liberal and cringy. Yes. In, in many times in the same episode. Oh, yes. Uh, so there is plenty to talk about, and it's not painful to watch. So this is something I, I expect to stay with for a minute. But uh, it but can be depressing. It can certainly be depressing, this episode in particular. Uh, like, yeah, some of the, oh, what's seen as being so terrible is so much less than what we're seeing now. Yep. And we'll get into that. And the episode that we're, we watched this week is uh, Future Tense Part 1. Oh, Past Tense Part 1. I keep getting that confused. Past Tense Part 1, it is a third season episode of DS9, so it's before... Cisco got his promotion to captain and also shaved his head and grew a goatee, which was pretty cool. And it is, but it also takes place after they get possession of the Defiant and after the uh, Romulans basically lease them a cloaking device to put into the Defiant uh, to make it better for fighting the Dominion. And that cloaking device can cause some problems. And we see a little bit of that in this episode here. I guess the Romulans never tried a blade of armor on their hull. Yeah. Yeah. Because the, the interference from a micro singularity should be an issue for Romulans with cloaking devices. Yeah. Teleportation because they use singularities to power their, uh, warships. Yeah. If you're near another ship that loses containment, say from battle damage, Suddenly, your cloaking device becomes an unpredictable time machine. This sounds like something the Romulans <laughs> would have spotted. Yeah. Well, they wanted to spot it, but then every time uh, <laughs> it happened, the Romulan ship got shot back into the past and then wound up changing something in the future. And that's why Romulans look and act so differently across their many depictions <laughs> uh, throughout the time span, throughout the timelines. So, oh my God. Uh huh. Sorry. That <laughs> <laughs> this is going to probably be me throughout. You guys are we have we have two Star Trek nerds in here and I'm a little baby here when it comes to this stuff, so I imagine this is going to be a lot <laughs> of the episode. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot to talk about that that is just like today. Like I don't know, I don't know what y'all got up to in 2020, but I was in the street fighting a couple of times, so yeah, we were we, we basically hit the bell riots four years early, and the difference is that they didn't fucking change a single goddamn thing. Well, yeah, that yeah is kind of maybe got the most depressing thing about the episode. Yeah, maybe got Biden elected, I guess, which you know got us pretty close to World War Three. So, uh, you know, we're we're on we're on track for building towards that Star Trek future, I guess. I will say the positive thing is I think that there are more people, including myself, that got hastened to leftism because of it. Oh, yes. So there, there is some positivity in the bleak vastness of terribleness. 
I would expect the ruling class to do everything they can to stop something like that from happening again, because having two widespread uprisings within easy living memory of each other will start to create class consciousness. And the thing is, uh, as always, they're going to want to stop something like that from happening again. But if the material conditions don't change, then it is going to continue happening. You know, mm -hmm. uh, the uprisings will continue until, uh, until improve. <laughs> it, not only that, but a lot of people have tasted Maybe freedom's not the right word, but at least as far as, you know... The joy of a street fight with police. Well, I, I was thinking, like, all of these anti-trans and now anti-gay bills, you know, yeah. almost like if you don't, you know, stand up for everyone, then your, right, your own rights are going to get taken away. Surprise, surprise. Yeah. But it's... I, I don't... No, people aren't going back to the closet, is yeah. my thing. Like, there's just so... It's one of those things that I don't know how you can keep poking this bear and keep thinking that everything's going to turn out fine. We're Each day we're constantly inching closer to, well, I've got nothing left to lose. And yep. the capitalists have everything to lose. So yep. having nothing to lose is how you get an Amazon distribution center unionized. Yep. Workers got nothing to lose. If Amazon fires everyone except their shitty jobs. Yep. And that's, I think, uh, in this episode, one of the main purposes of the sanctuary districts is to be there to show people what they can lose. Oh, yeah. So, all right. Yeah. Kind of getting into the episode here because I know we're going to have plenty to talk about. Yeah, that's, that's fair. Oh, real quick, I want to point out uh, this aired in January of 1995. Yep. Just to frame where everyone was yeah, I, was I had to look grade. up that because of something that i noted in the episode yep almost exactly 30 years ago and we are almost two years from to the day from when the bell riots would have ostensibly happened pretty wild so all right episode starts with the defined approaching earth which is the headquarters of the federation starfleet academy and starfleet headquarters are in san francisco and now I know you'd mentioned Athena being confused about them visiting Portland with instantaneous teleportation and like teleportation centers all over the planet. They were going to beam down to Starfleet headquarters first and kind of check in and then go to Portland uh, for dinner with that Admiral. Yeah. Because, yeah, because it starts off with them saying like, oh, I, I'm going to visit my sister in Portland. And then later in the episode, they, oh, they never made it to San Francisco. Yeah, it, it doesn't. Was, basically, it takes absolutely no time to get anywhere on the planet it takes longer to stand in line and to calibrate the transporter yeah there i've been watching picard on uh paramount and it's definitely one of the better shows to watch on paramount right now because some of the other shows are yellowstone <laughs> <laughs> the uh i'm gonna i'm gonna beat that dead branded ranch hand every time i get the chance but the it was really something I saw that they had really cool is they just have these like arches, little doorways that people just walk through and it teleports them. So it's like going from a fixed location and it kind of like a train and you know, it's like a train, except it's instantaneous where you're going from this station to this station and you just walk through it and it immediately teleports you. So I thought that was kind of cool. 
Yeah, it makes sense. Well, sort of. Puts uh, fighting for public transportation through trains and stuff in perspective. We can't yeah. even get trains. Yeah. So. All right. So they now there's a bit here that I thought was pretty interesting at the start where uh, they get the message from Quark and Quark is basically abusing an emergency channel <laughs> to get this message to Cisco to like have him put in like a good word for the Grand Nagus uh, when he's talking to uh, Starfleet Command. And something that I thought was interesting here is it really shows the kind of difference in personality between Cisco and Picard, because Picard gets a reputation of being a good like diplomat and orator, but you really see some good diplomacy here from Cisco, and it shows like yeah. his the level of diplomacy he's got to engage in on a regular basis as the uh, station commander, where he's learning because he has to do a lot of interactions with the Ferengi. So he's learning like their culture and their religion enough to be able to like quote rules of acquisition back and forth with Quark. And he doesn't do what someone like Picard would do, which is immediately chastise Quark for using the emergency channel and then like shut him off until he calls in the proper way or something. He's like, all right, okay, I'll go ahead and listen to this and get it out of the way and get it done. And then, you know, it's something that's important to Quark and the Ferengis are, have the chance to be beneficial allies in the fight against the Dominion. So he, he like just sucks up any sense of propriety and is diplomatic with Quark, even if yeah. he didn't need to be. And I thought that was kind of interesting. I would say that Picard is really more of a, more of a statesperson and... Cisco's really more of an actual diplomat. Yeah. Because Cisco is slippery and shady. Um, he's sort of the uh maybe the most chaotic of the titled captains so far. Uh certainly the most neutral. Yeah, definitely. All right. Um well I, I did want to one of the rules of acquisition that we talked about in the previous episode. I they mentioned a few of them here, and one of them I, I did want to mention one of them, and that is treat everyone in debt like family. Exploit them. Yeah, but they thought one of y'all might mention that one. <laughs> yeah. I just, given, you know, um, some conversations I've I've been having with, with Coco here and there, just in general, um, while we go on walks and things, it's just our entire, because, of course, the Ferengi, I think I said it right this time, they, no. you know, they're space capitalists, so they're kind of space us. Yeah. So they are very specifically space us. It, it's it's just so interesting how capitalism and fascism and therefore the foundations of this exploitation and corrupted bad family setup is just built in and just drilled into us from just as soon as you are born, you are pelted with abusive behavior. And it's I don't know, it's just interesting that it's all summed up in that little line. <laughs> yep. That is definitely on the nose there. There is uh there's another rule of acquisition uh, from earlier in the list, and it is just exploitation begins at home. Well, it's not wrong. Yeah. I, I, the Frangie rules of acquisition, uh, and I've read through, I actually had the Frangie rules of acquisition book when I was a kid. Same. And I am, very familiar with them. And uh, as a leftist, they are absolutely horrifying. It's just, it really is just amazing. And I think it's something that we all take for granted is that 
once again, these things are, our very society is built upon training you to be exploited. Yeah. Yes. And we just, we just self perpetrate the cycle over and over again. Welcome. Yep. Last episode, Ferengi workers don't seek uh, liberation. We seek to become the exploiters. Yep. That is that. I mean, if you don't hear that and think that it's about Americans, I don't know what to yeah. tell you. Temporarily embarrassed Latinum heirs. Yeah. Well, I mean, y'all are laughing, but I am though. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> Someday that uh, my idea is going to take off, and I will be the next Jeff Bezos, or Elon Musk, or Chris Brenner. I know I started that joke, but it just oh, it makes me bad or the cringe is just yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So is this is this the way that y'all are stating your intention to uh, to seek out and defeat Chapo Trap House in single combat to usurp their market share? Yeah, I, I I can probably take most of them. Problem is, there's so many of them. Yeah, I, I feel like I don't know. Matt Christman seems kind of tanky, so he might be a little tricky. And, oh, I can uh, handle Christman. Felix has the the uh, reflexes from being a gamer, so. Well, the main trouble with Felix is that he might be immune to pain. Yeah, yeah. True. I got in trouble in basketball because I wasn't competitive and mean enough. I don't think I'm taking out anyone in single combat. I mean, you don't have to, I guess. <laughs> we could just talk about Deep Space Nine instead. Can, can I can I uh, outgrow someone in a gardening competition? Oh. I, My weapon is you're just going to get taller, was what I was thinking. <laughs> As an adult human being, I don't think you can outgrow someone. I said a gardening competition. Yes, yes. <laughs> I am slowly catching up. So back to this. Mm -hmm. So basically, they uh, Cisco, Bash uh, Bashir, and Dax are going to, as the feder basically as the Federation officers on the ship, the senior officers. They are going to beam down to this thing, and so they go and get beamed down. And uh, O'Brien oh, noticed. I'd like to talk about one thing real quick before they beam out. Yep. There's a there's interplay on the bridge where they're all they're inviting everyone else to come with them to this like fancy party they're going to, yep. and everybody's got an excuse. But I'd like to highlight uh, uh, O'Brien. The best excuse. I stayed an enlisted man so that they wouldn't expect me to come to these things. Yep. <laughs> he's a he's a smart guy. Mm. So. Oh, and he also um I don't I think that they break this in Enterprise and I think the only other uh, the only other enlisted person to get a lot of lines in an episode anywhere in Star Trek is later in Deep Space Nine they find a bunch of cadets that have acting ranks and there are acting enlisted for some reason ranks in amongst the cadets why would you have acting enlisted it's an episode that you should really watch if you haven't seen Red Squadron um, I don't know if it would be good for a review it's a really dumb episode but it's very fun yeah. Yeah, that would be like it is it's somewhat important to Nog's arc as Nog being the uh the I enlisted in the military and went off to fight the war on terror and came back and now I have PTSD character. Yeah, that does sound like Nog. You know, I actually the very limited run uh Starfleet Academy comic book series, I still have issue one of that. Wow in the plastic that I put it in after I got it at the uh, comic store when I was a kid. Damn. Yeah. And uh, it features Nog in it. Oh, wow. It's... Okay. 
yeah, it's about his time at uh, Starfleet Academy. Um, I read the uh, the Starfleet Academy YA novels uh, back nice. in the nineties. I always wanted Nong to show up in them, but also I had stopped reading YA novels by the time he became a cadet. By the yeah. time I started wanting this, anyway. Anyway. Sorry. <laughs> I feel like this is my job. Yeah. So the <laughs> um. So they beam down. O'Brien notices that there's a problem with the transport. Uh, Starfleet command says that they never got them. And you see uh, Cisco and Bashir get like poked awake by a shotgun. And now I, I noticed that Athena, you were uh, kind of like confused about if they were actual cops or not, because they don't look militarized at all. And they, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's why I had to look up the year. It, it dawned on me. It's like, Oh, wait a minute. Yeah. And it's 1995. It's pre 9-11. So. Yep. Yeah, they're just carrying shotguns around, which is a big deal for cops to just do back then. Yeah. And well, and it kind of shows what they're expecting to go up against because a shotgun, like a combat shotgun, like that would be for, you know, enclosed spaces, like hallways, you know, crowded sanctuary districts, that kind of thing. Uh, notably, I'm pretty sure those, the ones they have are SPAS 12s, which uh, are notable for having a super high rate of fire. Yeah. Uh, while not being automatic. I think they're semi-automatic. Yeah, I just, probably one of the most liberal things about this episode, and not necessarily in a bad way in, in this regard, just in a, oh, we were so nice and cute back then, is that they weren't able to completely perceive how fucked up everything was going to be. Oh, yeah. Well, that's um, something I say on Tech Believe probably every other episode, is that nothing is more of its time than science fiction written in a period because yep. science fiction is always allegorical often to the present sometimes to the past it's better when it's the present in my opinion yep so and you know when they try and imagine the future in when they try to imagine the the past in star trek but it's the past that is in the future from us it's always interesting to see how close to or far from the mark they are mm-hmm. <laughs> So, and that's something I definitely want to talk about later on here. So I know, I, I think the suspicion that I have for who the cops are is like downtown here, we have these, like they're like a cross, they're like basically traveling private security for a commercial district. Downtown. Right. Is it a special commercial, commercial district or like a special business district? Yeah. And like the, the crossroads district or something. And they have uniforms. They've got walkie talkies. I don't think they're armed, but they certainly could be. And we do have armed private security all over the place here. And I think, I think that's what these guys are. I think they're like basically government contractors instead of straight up police. Yeah. It it definitely seems to imply that they definitely are sanctuary security quote-unquote yeah. that's what, what yeah that's the label that was thrown at them at one point and i think that in addition to that it's their job to like go around the non-sanctuary area and grab or like respond to reports or grab people who they see who are oh. being you know publicly homeless and then bring them into the sanctuary district okay so yeah. opening opening of this scene um like they fade in on like it's like a wall of buildings and like yep. 
it's like the whole neighborhood is participating in their normal standing on their balconies and staring out their windows completely motionless activity yes. but i guess the implication is supposed to be this whole neighborhood is like oh there's people sleeping on the ground we better call the sanctuary cops yep and then we have to stare at them because that's where the the sanctuary district is where those people need yeah to go. right that's the place right for like it yeah that seemed totally out of place to me because i am very slow to put these things together sometimes <laughs> okay buddy come on rise and shine come on now oh, look what we have here who are you who am i you believe this sleeping beauty asking me questions up hey vin we've been working all night why don't we forget about these guys I just want to go home and see Sonia and the kids and get some sleep. What are you, an anarchist? There's a law against sleeping in the streets. Though I do like the matching pajamas. All right, let's see some logo. Logo? ID. Identification. UAC card, transit pass. Where are we? What happened to Starfleet headquarters? Oh, perfect. Just what we need. Two more dims. Those shotguns, uniforms. Something very familiar about this. Yeah, probably from the last time you were in a sanctuary district. Sanctuary district? What year is this? Same year as it was yesterday, 2024. Let's go. How do they find us? Yeah. So uh, anarchism gets a shout out here because the younger of Are you the, an anarchist? the cops is like, hey, can't we just, you know, let these guys go? I want to go home and see my family. He's like, what are you, an anarchist? There's law against sleeping in the streets. I feel like this was the closest use of anarchy in a major TV appearance that wasn't just law, lawless and fire. It wasn't Bane inexplicably exploding the city. Yeah. Well, um, so, I mean, props. Yeah. It was someone trying to cut out of work early, which definitely an anarchist. That, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's not that's even. Not even early. He just didn't want to have to stay longer. Yeah, I don't want to do overtime. I didn't yeah. become, I didn't, I didn't yeah. become a a brutality cop just for overtime. All right. Yeah. A Anarchy is when you don't want to work overtime. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, I don't want to work overtime, so I'm an anarchist. <laughs> I mean, maybe it's unpaid overtime. Maybe they're paid salary because their shifts to go long a lot of the time. So they have to. Uh, they they no, want to make sure that he mentions can... overtime later. Yeah. He does That's right. Plenty of overtime. Yeah. yeah. So he's the one guy's just trying to get back to his family then. Yeah. Or he, yeah, he literally says, I want to see my family before yeah. I go to sleep. Yeah. Well, if he's a cop, then doesn't that mean he wants to go home and beat his family? Probably. I mean, it seems like he's pretty <laughs> tired. So even if he does usually. Oh, he's too tired for that. Yeah. Day. Yeah. Sorry. That's my, that's my dark for the day. <laughs> There's a content warning for the podcast. Oh, we are. We always have it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, all right. Now, I, I know that you had mentioned, uh, I'm looking at a lot of Athena's notes for this, if people can't tell, because I'm trying to find like stuff that you might have questions about within the setting and then kind of helping you out with that. So they, uh, you talk about O'Brien explaining to Kira what happened and, you know, uh, some concern that's a little bit mansplainy. Yeah. Um, Check the Heisenberg compensators. I'll run a level one diagnostic of the pattern buffers. See if there's any kind of field imbalance. Chief. Any news from Starfleet? Nothing good. As far as I can tell, Commander Sisko and the others never materialized in San Francisco. 
According to their sensors, our transporter signal disintegrated immediately after we began the beam-out sequence. That doesn't agree with our records. The system log shows that the transport was successfully completed. They definitely materialized somewhere. Well, that's good news anyway. But the question is where? Oh, I wish I knew. Whatever the answer is, it's not in the log. The only unusual thing it recorded was the variance in the annular confinement beam. But you corrected for that. It was a simple adjustment. The beam was just reacting to the accumulation of chroniton particles in the ship's hull. Chroniton particles? They're emitted by the cloaking device. They sometimes become lodged in the ship's ablative armor matrix. But we've used the transporter many times since the cloaking device was installed. There's never been a problem before. I don't know why there should be one now. Wait a minute. It looks like there was a surge in temporal energy seconds before the initiation of the transporter sequence. Tell me that's a clue. Oh, it's a clue, all right. I just don't know what it means yet. I'll say they do have lots of times in Star Trek where they'll have women tech people and uh, then you'll get, you know, it's they'll do the technical explanations of things. So it's it's basically they'll have the the, the egghead who explains things. And that's a pretty common archetype for the show. Okay, uh, so but it's, it's not, not like always... they don't, yeah, they, they don't, they never, ever, ever present Kira as like a dumb airhead throughout okay. the, oh, never, the rest of the definitely show. not Kira. I, I yeah. got that a bit later in the episode, but it was just one of those things as me like overanalyzing, yeah. you know, the, I mean, the, the, the guy explaining, you know, and it's like, oh, what's that? It's, it's definitely something that other shows would, it would it be an implication yeah. that it's, that the woman is, if it was Aaron Sorkin, it would be, yes. <laughs> you know, oh God, a please. implication that the woman is the one that they use as the, you know, imposition dump because women are dumb yep. to these oh. people. But so I, I, that's why I framed it as a question in my notes because I wasn't yeah. entirely sure. So I wanted to check in because I knew that you two would know. Yeah. No, what Star Trek does is they have a, a block within the script that says just the words techno babble yes. and then whoever the engineer character is they get to just make up likely sounding stuff and oh you can wow call... really yes that's hilarious that is a fact <laughs> uh, it's uh that's almost the only kind of like semi-improvisation that was allowed anywhere in deep space nine um the yeah. actors are uh, like often say stuff like um if you wanted to improvise a line uh, you had to like file it in advance by two weeks at least <laughs> but wait isn't this where like continuity errors could happen isn't oh aren't, yeah. Aren't yes. people, oh, yeah aren't there people I, who argue about this stuff isn't yeah, that a whole I, thing <laughs> hello i am half of a podcast that's just about this <laughs> yes i'd like to mention that uh o'brien does just casually throw out the term subspace bubble and Heisenberg compensator. Well, he the Heisenberg compensators uh, make sense. Um, oh, of, of course, of course, the Heisen yes, the Heisenberg. Compensator. The Heisenberg compensator is part of the transporter assembly. Um, it's what allows the uncertainty principle to not be something we argue about anymore. The the joke in Galaxy Quest of the giant machine that no one knows what it does. <laughs> it makes more sense now. That's yeah, really Galaxy funny. Quest is one of the best Star Trek movies. Uh, Galaxy tells... Quest is the best Star Trek movie so far. <laughs> yeah, anyone who says otherwise is lying. Um, in my opinion, uh, I have only seen the first season of Oroville, but the first season of Oroville might be one of the best seasons of Star Trek. Yeah, the first season. Later ones, not so much, but the first season. So they the actors have to figure out a way to explain away the weird 
sciencey, magicy things that happen in the show. Yep, they know what needs. That's to happen a lot of pressure. And like, it's. I mean, sure, yeah, it definitely is. Like a lot of stuff about acting on Star Trek was probably more pressure than it really needed to be. But uh, it's uh, like you get at the beginning of the week's filming, uh, you get like the initial copies of the script and it has the blocks in it. And then sort of with your feedback and like with the authors bouncing back, uh, back, they complete the lines before they do the final filming. I, I don't know why it's funny to me. <laughs> I mean, it is like, pretty cool. It is cool. It gives um, it, it, it gives all of the shows uh, this kind of like background continuity. And it's it's a really I, I think they probably worked this out in the first years of the next generation. But like, yeah, so until like Voyager also has like the exact same thing, I can think of three different major scenes where it's just like two 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 people spouting words at each other that no one understands while the rest of the cast is in the background. Yeah. So, yeah, that's, and that's that's exactly what's happening in this scene, too. But uh, and like as just a real quick other thing, um, normally if you're gonna have a woman doing uh, a like a technical or science fiction uh, info dump, it's gonna be Dax, who is lost in time right now. Yes. Oh yeah, yeah she definitely fine. seemed like she knew what she was doing. I was, it's like oh yeah yeah totally I know exactly the thing that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Are you okay? Oh my head. What happened? Did you get jacked or something? Jacked? You know, robbed. Oh. Did they get your credit chips, your ID? Oh, it looks like they got everything. Except my brooch. What, do you live near here? Um, can you get home? I was traveling with some friends and, uh, I guess we got separated. Well, you shouldn't be walking around without ID. You better order some replacements. You can use my interface terminal if you wish. My office is... Just around the corner. That's very kind of you. Um, Chris. Chris Brenner. Jadzia. That's a pretty name. What is that, Dutch? <laughs> Something like that. It's very kind of you to help me. Oh, don't mention it. It's not every day that I get to rescue a damsel in distress. Let me help you. Yeah, I did. I, I've talked about this in my notes some, and I, I was uh, talking about how you can really tell that Jadzia Dax has been around for a long time and has a lot of experience with unfamiliar situations because much faster than <laughs> Cisco and Bashir, she immediately adapts to the situation and like gets to work trying to meet back up with the others. And it's funny because the, the alternate universe version of Elon Musk there uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. describes her as a damsel in distress that he helps. And yeah. uh, I, uh, I don't think she is. I think she's uh, got things pretty much in hand. Yeah, well, by cluing in immediately that she needed to make him think that. Yep. Yeah, I I will say it is that there is some interesting stuff with those two because I think ultimately her being split up and being with the rich guy was to show the disparity. Yeah. But there is some kind of commentary, even if it's unintentional, of, well, if you're a pretty woman, then you're going to get taken care of. Oh, yeah. That's... I don't know how unintentional that was. I'm pretty sure that was part of it. I mean, so when I was a kid, uh, because I was clueless, I sort of just assumed that Dr. Bashir was a white guy. But uh, I believe the actor is... Shit, now I'm going to fuck this up. Turkish? 
But uh, regardless, like he's not a white dude. Obviously, uh, Captain Cisco is a black man. A thing that this episode is missing is that neither of them are being treated in a racist fashion by the cops. Yeah, uh, Alexander Siddig is uh, Sudanese. His mother was English. Oh, fuck. Oh, holy shit. Malcolm McDowell is his uncle. Oh, who's that? Uh, you remember Star Trek Generations? Yeah. You know the guy who's the Elorian who tries to blow up a son? Oh, yeah. Okay. That, that is guy? Malcolm McDowell. He's a famous uh, character actor. Nice. Yeah, so that's wild that it's also his uncle. But yeah, so yeah, he is uh, Sudanese. So yeah, ni- neither of them are like entirely white, but he definitely kind of, he pr- really presents as white though, I think. Uh, well, yeah, because Dr. Bashir is such like a nerd soft boy. Yeah. Well, and his character is very liberal, so. Yeah. I think that's uh, most of it. That's very, that's very him, yes. What is this place? Sanctuary District. 21st century history is not one of my strong points. Too depressing. It's been a hobby of mine. They made some ugly mistakes, but they also paved the way for a lot of things we now take for granted. I assume this is one of those mistakes. A bad one. By the early 2020s, there was a place like this in every major city in the United States. Why are these people in here? Are they criminals? You know, people with criminal records weren't allowed in the sanctuary districts. Then what do they do to deserve this? Nothing. Just people. Without jobs or places to live. So they get put in here? Welcome to the 21st century, Doctor. And I, I will say, because I'd seen scenes of when they're walking around the sanctuary district before, and they're doing the, the talk about what it is. And it didn't, it hit differently knowing Bashir is the liberal stand-in. Yeah. Because, you know... Oh, I don't look at a lot of 21st century Earth because it's depressing. And yeah. then, well, <laughs> well, wait, are they criminals? Because like it's it's like they got to be criminals if they're living like this. Yeah, what what are they doing here? They have to have done something wrong to wind up here because it's so hard to think of somebody winding up somewhere bad just because there is systemic injustice in the world. Yeah, it it just it felt super liberal. Yeah, which seems to have been on purpose so no it was absolutely but i i will say he comes around a little bit more later oh yeah he definitely picks up on it and he also i mean he has you know the the uh liberal trait of having a really hard time not immediately like they'll ignore problems but if there's somebody in trouble immediately in front of them they feel really guilty if they can't do something about it Yeah, yeah. So you were wondering about the underdressed as far as armor and weapons, and I do think that you know the the militarization of the police in our recent time is definitely part of why they didn't kind of show that. But I think also that these guys are those you know basically like rented cops essentially. And yeah, they also when they're getting checked in, there's the the like background check computer that didn't age well at all <laughs> is. Uh, saying stuff like their government discount has been accepted. So I think they have Mm. governmental power, but they're not like, I think if the actual police were to show up in this setting, they would be, they would basically look like the police we see now, you know, they would be the, the jackbooted thugs and nightmare 
It's it's interesting because it would imply in this world that it takes a lot more to get the police called. Yeah. Which is interesting. I yeah, and I would not be surprised if that is the case. Well, because, that's that's what the Renicops are for. Yeah. Because we see that there's, you know, they have helicopters and there was a response to, you know, a stabbing, probably more for show than anything, but Yeah. To uh to run a place like that and not have disease running rampant they need to be moving the bodies out every day possibly like like, as soon as they find them i i imagine of course i'm basing it off of how it would work here is that if you don't move the bodies out yourself then they're not going to care and they're not going to do it yeah it's kind of a you can't can't really run a place like is depicted there without like you need to have either like some measure of cooperation with the people who live inside to clear the dead out at least and also, like, I mean, you see in the set dressing, like, there's some, like, trash and refuse, but, like, also someone has to be taking the waste away. Those are the two things that are, like, absolutely minimum. I oh, guess God, they probably have water. trailer bathrooms like we had overseas. Oh, yeah, the, the Cadillac trailers. Yeah. Yep, the old Cadillacs. Well, the thing is, you know, people don't like to live in filth. If, if someone's, like, actually living in their own filth, that is a sign of a much bigger problem. It's a symptom. It's not how people are. And I mean, cause it's just biological at that point. People don't naturally, you don't know, you don't you have an evolutionary reason to not want to sit in your own filth. And it's just interesting to me. And this isn't necessarily about the show, but you, you get this idea with like, houseless people to get they're nasty, they're filthy and they just, they do this and that. And it, they don't have a choice. They don't have a choice. If you gave them a place to clean and, or, you know, a house, then they would clean up. You know, it's not that hard to understand. Of course, it's not necessarily about hard to understand. It's just having basic human empathy and recognizing that people are people and not below you. Something other than looking past. Um, I'll say in my experience that if you can establish a regular refuse pickup for an encampment then it gets a lot better to live in that encampment like and people are almost always willing to proactively like gather trash and clean up it's just that if there's no one taking it away there's no reason to put it anywhere mm-hmm. like he's yeah if if it's just if you move it to you're just moving it from one place to the other at a certain point and you you have only so much energy to expand so why bother there's actually uh i could bring up uh after we unlawfully invaded and occupied iraq uh garbage collection service stopped and uh, i don't think it's ever been reestablished. but um what this resulted in is that uh every village had like sort of a trash drift along the roads coming into and out of it and that was that was it that was the entire solution <laughs> i have no idea like uh, there wasn't Seven or there wasn't four years worth of trash piled up everywhere. So like there was some other disposal method, but like it was it's one of the more depressing things, uh, one of the bigger indicators of how fundamentally unserious the occupation was, is that like those ba- that basic surface was never reestablished. Yep. Yeah. That was something that happened under the Bathist regime. Also, the trash was picked up. It's like one of the things, one of the only things that could still happen under the uh under both the, the twin 
uh, weights of the Bathurst regime and the sanctioned regime. So, yeah, back to the, the trash yeah. here. Uh, Thanks. Let me use your terminal and your account. You know, those are very unusual. Oh, you mean my tattoos? It is amazing work. Where did you have them done? Japan? How did you guess? Well, I used to have one myself. A Maori tribal pattern used to go all the way down my arm. Got it in high school back in the 90s, just like everybody else. Of course, I had to have it removed. Well, you know how it is. To get the government contracts, you have to look like all the rest of the drones. So I guess that makes me a sellout. Not necessarily. What kind of business do you do? You don't know? Mm -mm. Well, I guess I'll have to have a talk with my public relations people. I'm Chris Brenner. Brenner Information Systems. You know, interface, operations, net access, channel 90. That Chris Brenner. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you think? Does that make me a sellout or not? Probably, but I won't hold it against you. Dax uh, has access to his computer, which again, like the technology. I love the computers. <laughs> uh, none of the technology in this aged well at all. It's not a computer. He calls it a personal interface or connection yeah. thing or something they call i should have wrote it down internet, they call it the interlink right yeah. yeah well it's because it's the you know it's because it's 1995 and the internet was still in its infancy and nobody really had any idea how all this driveway. shit was going to turn out i know but it's so cute to hear like this cute baby cyberpunk lingo it's like oh yeah you want to come back and use my interface it's like yeah. whoa <laughs> i don't think so we just met thank you <laughs> Ah. Hey there, forehead tattoo lady. You want to interlink and chill? <laughs> You've got such interesting tattoos. Where'd you get them oh, done? Yeah. Oh, that whole thing. Like I totally oh appropriated a bunch of Maori tattoos, but then I sold out to become a billionaire and had to get them all taken off. You know how it is. Yeah. You try to culturally appropriate the Maori tattoos and then you've got to get government contracts so you can, you know, build Echelon or Carnivore or something. And it's just, you wind up selling out everything. Yeah. I, I will say, I thinking back, I remember in the nineties that there was a tattoo craze of like a sleeve thing of, you know, triangles and stuff like that. Isn't, isn't, I, I don't know specifically, but I feel because he mentions how, oh, everyone was doing it back then. And I feel like I remember that that was a thing in the 90s. Yeah, yeah god awful yeah. tattoos were very popular in the 90s. Yeah, and that was when white people started getting sleeves a lot, um, I think. I don't actually know a whole lot about tattoo culture history, but like there was it's only in the last decade or so in a lot of places where you can like get a job with visible tattoos yeah definitely something that's changing quickly especially as the uh, older generation retires but be because of that i actually wonder at first i thought like oh wow look they're making fun of this guy doing cultural appropriation but i don't think that was oh. actually the case they're making fun of him for one following a trend and then two selling out yeah, yeah. He's you specifically know, this character is being self-depreciating uh, yeah. in order to present himself as like less threatening to a woman that he does unfamiliar to, but is interested in. Oh yeah, it's all very creepy. I don't know if it's supposed to come off as creepy, but it comes off. It it's very creepy. Well, 
part of what makes it so creepy, I think, is like the 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 setting and framing, but also part of what makes it creepy is that it was a relatively normal approach for the mm-hmm. 90s. Oh, it's yep. still a thing. Yep. It's okay. He's gonna just he's gonna save the rescue the damsel and then she'll be charmed by him and want to have sex with him and then uh he'll have his GF. He literally calls her a damsel in distress. Yeah. I Let's don't like him. I'm just looking for for like a hot nerdy symbiotic alien wife who has either spots or tattoos one or the other it's fine if they're both they're spots they go all the way down quote unquote also yeah it does that have to do with the symbiotic thing or is it no it's it's, host species has them it's one of their traits yeah it's their forehead of a weak of the weak alien trait which is not their first one when they first showed up on next generation they had a forehead thing which they changed one because they didn't want to have to do the makeup uh, and prosthetics uh, every day. And two, because Dax is supposed to be like a physically attractive character in addition to everything else. They don't want to put a big thing on her face. Hmm. I mean, it's kind of gross, but also like it definitely. The spots do work. I mean, the sp- oh, yeah, they do. It's just it just it. There's a lot of male gazy stuff. Like I noticed there's classical oh, yeah. lighting in this yes. where it'll zoom up on Dax's face and it's all, you know, e- ethereal lighting to give her that look and stuff and it's literally if you look up the male gaze and read up on it that they will you they will show you lighting exactly like that to demonstrate, you know, how women are lit for beauty and guys are lit for action and stuff. So to rearrange an entire race's characteristics to make someone look hot is to move. It is a move. Uh, I mean, you're definitely not wrong, but I think also if you looked at what the Trill Bridge of the Nose prosthetics looked like for the one episode they were supposed to be in, you would agree that they should change somehow. <laughs> it was pretty bad. Yeah. <laughs> but you're not wrong. You're completely correct. It's just also what they would have kept was super goofy. Yeah. I just I just feel like there's a there's another way to go. <laughs> um <laughs> yes, there's a like in addition to just the like cultural hegemony that it the the cast was and crew were embedded in. There's also as I've spoken about a little bit the the monster behind the curtain named Rick Berman and uh if you wanted to pick an individual who was the male gaze, it would be him. I just I find the shows and the series Star Trek just fascinating because on one hand you have pushing the boundaries and then on the other hand it's just ooh, ooh, ah, mm, mm, okay we'll, we'll mm, yep that happened well there's a variety of stuff that star trek pushed boundaries in that wasn't that was like less significant or like was i don't know uh the the thing that i'm talking about specifically is uh the original series famously has uh, the first uh, on-screen kiss between a black person and a white person right. would be broadcast in the U.S. And actually, so that that took place. It took place several times when it was recorded. They, I think uh, Chatner said they had to do like four or five takes. He has a very classically gross take on it, too. He said like the uh, the showrunners approached him and they were like, so would you would you be willing to kiss Michelle in a scene? And he was all like, oh, God. <laughs> but so they did uh, they did the kiss during the dance they recorded it 
network executives were on the set watching the whole time and they did not air it. They aired a take uh, instead where uh, like it looks like it happened, but it doesn't. Super fun. Like Star Trek is full of moments like this where it's like they were uh, like clearly uh, people on on the executive part of the crew are trying uh, and like yeah. most of the actors are willing even when they're gross dudes like William Shatner. Well, that kind of reminds me of a lot of what Disney's going through right now is because, you know, Disney as the company is so, uh, for the love of God, they were pushing for the don't say gay bill, right? And then you have all of these people who are trying to push the boundaries and get stories told. So I, I want to see what Turning Red was before it probably got cleaned up a whole lot. Yeah, It would be really interesting to know what's behind the scenes in these places and you know, that's kind of, that's one of the things that we were getting at, you know, uh, with Hedgepod and was talking about cultural hegemony is that studio stink, you know, yes. the <laughs> way that the executives at a studio will make showrunners change something so that it's more marketable or less controversial or will play well in this market or won't scare off advertising. Sell you know, toys. Yeah. This is, that is the ruling class putting its hand on the scale and trying to make sure that our entertainment media reflects and reinforces their ideology. And I mean, that's, and that's how it happens. And you know, that's, there's, cause we talk about, you know, conscious and unconscious, and this is not the unconscious part, you know, the stuff that you'll see reflected, like, I think a lot of Bashir's character is unconscious, but a lot of the stuff behind the scenes, the changes that are made, that is absolutely, you know, conscious decisions. Mm. And it's really interesting with Star Trek to see kind of the history of that, because that's been... The, a factor in the show since the beginning. So it's that it's one of the things that makes it a good show to look at for Hedgepod because there's times where it shows unconscious cultural hegemony. Like the, the stuff about Gabriel Bell in this being the one person that the future hinges mm -hmm. on. You know, I was about to bring that up. And I, you know, great, that's great man theory of history. And I don't think they're putting that in to intentionally try and push that idea that you know you have to wait for the great person to come to save everybody like i i think that's something where that's just something they've soaked in from the culture to such an extent that they don't question it anymore uh, yeah i mean and think about we grow up with this you know that the great individual people who started this or did that and yeah. it also it also plays to capitalism because some of these great inventors, quote unquote, they did not invent this shit on their own. They yeah. did not invent this crap in a vacuum. They yeah. probably had help. In fact, they probably stole some of these ideas from people working under them that they could exploit. An example is, so this is a small thing, but I'm going to use it as an example that, so brown paper bags, you know how they have like the flat bottom to them? Well, yeah. There was a woman, and I'm trying to retell the story at the top of my head, so forgive me. And she realized that it would be better, or that there was a way to make a machine that would create a flat bottom on these bags faster and efficiently. And I think also created the flat bottom of the 
brown brown paper bags? Well, as she was coming up with this and she was trying to patent the idea and stuff, a guy came up and I think the owner of the original place she was working at and just said, this was my idea. This is my idea. And he almost got the patent for this machine, except she had handwritten how to make the machine and Ooh. showed her original notes. So the judge had to say that it was her machine. So that was one case where it got spotted. It does not, usually it does end not normally that end that way. We have no, that's the thing that is amazing to me. And I'm not even saying just women. We have no idea how many ideas have been stolen from other people that have been subordinate to other people, including mm -hmm. white guys. Like, there's just so many things out there because of this, you know, great person of history shit, because capitalism and fascism both thrive with this type of stuff. They need you to believe that you can't contribute so they can make their money off of other people. I mean, that's absolutely the case. There's never an idea good enough to, to look into that wasn't good enough to steal. Yep. So... Getting back to this, they've entered in. Oh, uh, the the hapless government worker is explaining the situations in the sanctuary districts to uh, Cisco and Bashir after they get checked back in. And so some of the slang, some of the cool future slang here is uh, just to break them down one by one. You have the dims and those are the mentally ill. It's not Dems, it's D-I-M. Uh, like a dim oh. Yeah. Okay. I The thing I was streaming this on was spelling it D-E-M. Yeah, no, it is. <laughs> uh, we put all the Democrats in the yeah. sanctuary district. Well, I... No, because no... this is San Francisco, <laughs> not Oklahoma. That, that's what the Oklahoma sanctuary district has. Oh, you're not wrong. Oh, God, that hurt. Oh, I want to leave. And I'm trying to. Anyway. Cause Noah if Noah's looking at my notes here, he he knows. Yeah. Like I'm like I was like, what does this mean? Is yeah. it Democrat? Is it demented? Which that really <laughs> fucking sucks. I mean, DIM isn't any better, but yeah. <laughs> just like trying to figure uh, it out. Might as well be. Might as well be D E M for demented. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, the other slang term is gimme, and that's uh anybody who wants a basic standard of living and quality of life is a gimme. They want you to give me something. And that's what they classify Cisco and Bashir as, because they're the ones who want the, the state to give them help. And then there's the ghosts who are, I guess, gimmies who went into the sanctuary districts and then like didn't socialize well. Now, I would think if you're not allowed to have a criminal record and be in the sanctuary district, that there wouldn't be a lot of ghosts in there, because as soon as you do ghost stuff and get identified as one, then they're able to, you know, say that you're a criminal in the sanctuary district, and then they wind up sending you to the work camps at that point. Yeah, it. There's a couple of things where, if you really think about it, it doesn't really hold up. Yeah, yeah. There's some stuff about the framing of this episode that has to do with being able to fit the yeah. narrative into two hours. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely it. Like they needed to have characters fill the role of the ghost characters, you know, the the antagonists within the sanctuary district. So and it's it's interesting too because the whole 
they they act like you can look at someone and figure out if they're a demi a dim or a gimme. Yeah. Which that doesn't make any sense to me because later on this guy sees the two and's like, "Oh, you're gimmies." It's like but how but how would you know that? Yeah. Well, again, I think that's actually that's sort of a framing device. If you recall that character when he does his whole spiel like at the end of it, it's like, "Yeah, show up." Make sure everybody's like wearing their best and brings their families. We got to show them that, like, we're respectable. Yeah. I thought you didn't want to get involved. We've changed our minds. Glad to hear it. We can use all the help we can get. This place is about to explode. Most of us agreed to live here because they promised us jobs. I don't know about you, but I haven't been on any job interviews lately, and neither has anyone else. They've forgotten about us. So what do we do? We make them remember. Day after tomorrow, we're going to hold a rally outside the processing center. I want everyone to be there. Gimmies, ghosts, even the dims. I want to remind the people outside that we haven't done anything wrong, that we're not criminals, and that we don't deserve to live like this. We'll spread the word. Good. One more thing. Tell people when they come to the rally to bring their families, their kids, and try to look their best. We're not derelicts, no matter what they say about us. So what he's the the stand-in for sort of the uh, like I don't know, like the left edge of the liberals, progressive organizer. Yeah, he he's like AOC. Well, I mean, like if AOC was living in a yes concentration camp for houseless people instead of in dc basically i like this guy a little bit better than AOC. (laughs) basically somebody who's trying to make sure someone who's pushing respectability politics yeah this is like where i because there's some good stuff in this episode but at closer and closer you get to the end the more and more liberal it feels like it starts getting because well so I know very well what happens in the second part of this episode. So I haven't watched it yet. I was waiting. No, that's, I mean, yeah, I just, it's, I'm interested to see what you have to say on this topic after mm-hmm. the next one. Oh, yeah. So, oh, yeah, because think... right now it's, because there's the whole, like, oh, there's the proper way to protest and there's the wrong way to protest and yeah. this guy's bad because he's violent and obviously he's, you know, not that I would use this word, but I believe that they would have used the word in the script deranged, you know, like it, there, there's very much the, the entire settings of, I, he talks about how bell turns the protest around by saving the hostages. And after he saves the hostages by putting down his life, then public opinions on the sanctuary States or districts change and then they get rid of them and then we start fixing all the problems that the united states ever had yep. and i find that incredibly naive i just this one event is going to change everything and it just and not only that but it is changed because public perception of the districts are changed I this the yeah. systematic of oppressions don't care about public perception, as we have seen many many times. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, what's very important to remember about Star Trek 
arguably more recent uh some of the more recent star trek series don't cleave to this but uh, star trek is a utopian science fiction and part of part of what's frustrating us and we're calling lib shit is actually like it's, it's utopian lib shit specifically i am a fan of utopianism socialist utopianism huge fan of the uh, seriously wrong podcast which is all about that but the utopianism that we're seeing here is that like these people have come from hundreds of years in the future from a post-scarcity society and they're looking at the actual nature of the progression of events like even cisco he takes what 15 minutes of screen time to realize what time like when he actually yep. is so like even though he's clued in on what happened both Avery Brooks, the actor, and Benjamin Sisko, the character, are uh, are pretty up on things like social struggles of the 20th century. Now, now I lost my train of thought. Well, please continue. So you were talking about Sisko taking a while to realize where he's at. Yeah. Oh, sure, yeah. So even if you had, even if you had more time to more fully build out the world and the history, these these characters because they come they they come from the liberal utopia they're not even aware really that they can't frame the nature of like the actual progression of events that come out of uh gabriel bell's heroic death i mean yeah but as far as like from a writing perspective i i oh no no yeah the writers are also not aware that they can't frame that yeah because it, it to me it definitely felt like especially since we've heard this from liberals that this is all it takes to change the world is a single person in the right time at the right place. And don't get me wrong, the right person in the right place can do some things, but without, you can't build a social movement without the social part of it, which is something that always yeah. is amazing to me is you, and it's something that is the most depressing when you live in a place where you can't seem to get anyone to do what needs to be done because, okay, a chip on my shoulder lately, if your protest can be ignored, it's not a protest. It's, it's a complaint. Yeah. That's fair. yeah. Just, that's a parade. yeah, it's a parade. If, if you can ignore your protest, it's not a protest. One of the things that made me so pissed off at Odo last week is, uh, He's like, if you need to protest to make your point, then your point's not yeah. worth making. <laughs> like, well, what the fuck do you want then? These people are oppressors. They don't care about your moral grievances. They don't care about moral grievances. They got where they are by not giving a shit about moral grievances. They yeah. don't care. Do you yep. think that they're going to care that you have a sign and you're marching in a little circle? It works if you're striking to an extent because you are withholding your labor. Yep. If this is not a strike scenario, you just marching in a circle is not doing anything. You're nope. just marching in a circle. Yeah, the picket line is not the guts of the protest or the right. strike. It's the withholding of the labor. <laughs> yeah. And if if you are not... Anyway, you get the point. But that's kind of the thing here is that you need all of the big protest movements... Maybe there was someone that was pushing things along, but it was, if, let me rephrase it. Sometimes there was someone pushing things along, but without the people, it wouldn't it's have. It's just one person with a good it's, idea. It's just one person with a good idea. Yeah. 
So yeah. So even if yeah, that's the thing. Like even if Gabriel Bell had died and Cisco didn't, you know, replace him or anything, something there still would have like maybe that wouldn't have changed anything at that sanctuary district. But you know, that doesn't mean that the entire system wouldn't collapse on its own because of the contradictions within it over time, mm-hmm. because the system itself is broken and it doesn't get fixed because one person is held up as, you know, a, a martyr. You know, the, the system gets fixed when everybody says that they that says enough is enough. And it's never just one person that makes the difference. Yeah. And you can argue too that that person who is making the difference is making the difference because people are putting them on a platform. Yeah. Not always. Sometimes it's manufactured, but that's a whole other discussion about other things. I mean, you don't get, you don't get like one person or a group of people with a good guiding idea to be successful unless you either, they either are a group of people with a good idea and capital or a group of people with a good idea and a groundswell of popular support. Yeah. Those are pretty much the two avenues. Yep. And we don't really do the latter one anymore. So so, Um, something that they touch on uh, at this point in the episode, that Dax is at a dinner party with AU Elon Musk. And the, the, that's where she really learns about the sanctuary districts and what's going on with them. And you can really like palpably tell that the reason these rich assholes love having the sanctuary district around is because out of sight, out of mind, it lets them pretend that those people don't exist. Mm -hmm. And they're so comfortable in that. They're so happy that that's a factor, you know, that they don't have to think about the dims anymore. They don't have to think about, you know, the, the homeless people sleeping on the streets. I hear you just came back from Christchurch. Yes. Did a little skiing on Mount Cook. <laughs> You're lucky. We had to cancel our trip to the Alps this year because of the student protests in France. I thought the neo-Trotskyists were going to put a stop to that. They're not having any more luck than the Gaullists did. Europe is falling apart. Well, at least we don't have to worry about that kind of thing here. Don't count on it. You'll have to excuse Jadzia's cynicism. She was just mugged yesterday. That kind of thing's bound to give a negative impression of the future. So, who mugged you? Did you see them? It doesn't really matter. I'm just glad that I wasn't hurt. Well, whoever it was did a very thorough job. They took everything she had, even her ID. Chris rescued me and let me use his computer to get my replacement ID. You were lucky the police didn't find you first. If they'd caught you on the street without ID, you might have ended up in a sanctuary district. I thought they stopped doing that. Why would they? It's the only way to keep those people off the streets. Excuse us a minute. You know, there's the place for them. And it's that, it's not just that they don't see them. It's that they're able in their minds to think, okay, it's under control. They've been put in the place that exists for those people. You know, they're able to think, okay, well, and it's that liberal sensibility. They're like, okay, they're in the place now that's for poor people, but it also offers job placement and it also provides them with ration cards and buildings to sleep in. So from the outside to them, it seems like it's fine. 
but they all and you're like okay well you know, people are getting taken of there taken care of there it's you know the proper place for them but you can also tell from the horror that they have when they're talking about it that they know it's actually not a good place that they're terrified of falling off of the mountain that there are and rolling downhill and finding themselves in a sanctuary district like they they wouldn't be so scared of going there if they didn't know on some level that it's not a place you want to be and no matter where you come from when you get in you can't get out yeah which is god it's Rings a bell, doesn't it? Yeah. Like if you're if if you were a rich and connected person, or if you were just a well-connected person and you had your wallet stolen, like your ID stolen, like Dax did, then you get picked up. Uh, or you had said that she had happened anyway. You know, you get picked up and put in the sanctuary district because there's no one around to speak for you or whatever that you can get a hold of. They wouldn't be concerned about that prospect because they'd know that as somebody who's, you know, connected, they'd be out of there pretty quickly. And uh, they'd know that, oh, well, I've got housing and food while I'm in there. So, you know, it's just a place to stay for a little bit while everything gets straightened out. They know that's not the case. And that's why they're so scared of it. They know that once you get in, you can't get out. Yeah, it's... um you can taste off of the two rich people and then also discount Elon Musk to a lesser extent because he's being uh, framed as being more yes. likable. Mm-hmm, which um, I hated that. Rich both, person with a conscience. Gotta believe they exist so you don't cut their heads off. They have both like the like the the condescension and the sort of like sick glee of seeing like uh, of knowing there's a place for for the bad people to yeah. be taken to. And we don't have to worry about them anymore. And then, of course, and then you have like the fear as well. That's what you don't see nowadays when you're like when you're looking at discussions, reading articles about, say, Portland's plan to to have the National Guard build three concentration camps in Portland for houseless people. They don't have the they don't have they don't exhibit the fear themselves. They hide that. They hide it. Maybe hide it from themselves. Well, I think I honestly think there's a lot of rich people that believe right now that they are untouchable, and yeah. you see that in the way that they act and yeah. run the country because you, Elon Musk, Bezos, all like all of these people believe that they're untouchable. I would argue that believing that you're untouchable is part of hegemonic culture, yeah. which is why you see low-income white men and women like self-destruct in videos all the time when it turns out that actually you just are a worker like the rest of yeah. us. Oh, totally. I, I definitely don't think it's true. In fact, when someone thinks that they're untouchable, it makes me want to go touch it. But <laughs> with preferably with a very <laughs> pinky stick. Uh, well, one of the unique traits of the the kind of you know chud mindset in the u.s and it's something you see reflected across the wealthy as well is not only do they believe that they're untouchable but when they see somebody in an identical circumstance to them get touched and get touched hard they never think oh that could happen to me no they gloat about it they love it when it happens to yeah. other people. And like all the people that all the, you know, conservatives who would die of COVID and who were unvaxxed, who have every opportunity 
to you know they, they had every chance to to mask up they had every chance to isolate and they had every chance to get a vaccination and they decided against all of that not for any you know good reasons but just because they didn't want anyone to tell them what to do and you'd think after the first few of those they would stop but instead they're like oh can't that not that can't happen to me even if it's somebody that they know personally that can't happen to me and it gets alternated with oh that's a conspiracy there's it's still not real yeah it's uh, just like it's not happening and if it is it's yeah. fine. so it's so creepy and it's going to get us it's going to drag a lot of us under with them because yeah you it's destructive it's a destructive behavior you're not to it's not a a normal rational way to act yep that bad things can never happen um, to you because they can on this topic i like to point out um you remember the the trump boat parade guys i watching all of like the the little regular sized boats get like absolutely wrecked by the the, the wakes from the big yachts mm -hmm. yep you saw a bunch of like upper middle class white people trying to have solidarity with like people who had actual wealth and like having like and just getting wrecked having, doing it. They almost died. People could have died. People die all the time when their boats aren't swamped when they're boating. Yeah. Like it's a miracle nobody died. Yeah. I saw, uh, I, I had a relative who uh, went to federal prison for tax evasion. Uh, and it was because he made the mistake of being somebody who's rich, who thinks that they're wealthy. You know, he, yeah. he could do the same accounting tricks that they're able to do. And he was wrong about that. <laughs> well, you can do the same tricks. They just yeah. don't work. Or you do them wrong because you went to a seminar at a, you know. Oh, my God. Really? And yeah. heard this great new way of managing your business's incomes by setting up shell companies in like the isle of man and other places around the world that's just a like that's that's a motivational talk about doing tax yep. fraud. oh my god one weird one weird trick yep. governments hate yes <laughs> did did not go great for him it's my uh, money and i need it now though i do love yeah. those commercials just for the meme ability yeah and Oh my, are they still playing those? No, they're not. Oh, I just, I was a child when they were around, and so it, they're ingrained into my yeah. brain. We had them in Texas too. Oh yeah. And yeah, you know, it's, uh, yeah. people really do not realize that if you're below a certain level, you're not on the same level as the higher level. And they, you don't have a, so, like the rich don't actually have solidarity with the wealthy. They have the illusion of solidarity. Mm -hmm. They're predators. And well, that's not, there's actually pack predators. Opportunists. If you're going to use this analogy. Yeah. They're sort of like opportunistic feeders that are subsisting richly on scraps, more yeah. or less. I think that doesn't actually happen in nature, I think, but metaphor. Yeah. I can't think of a good analogy because it's just not a natural thing that happens in nature a whole lot. Well, okay. oh, we're terrible. There's sort of like there's the there's the white man treadmill effect where uh, if you've been immune to consequences for your entire life and like you've always been able to like skate out of things or like talk away out of things or just like say nothing and people let you do whatever you want. And then suddenly you run into a consequence. Likely that's going to be kind of a big deal. Not just to you because you're not used to it, but also because you've gotten to the point where you're trying to get a 
you've basically gotten the equivalent of I read a bunch of sovereign citizen email forwards and I'm mm. trying to beat my tra traffic ticket with it, but with all of your money. I I have to say, as a autistic woman, it's well, woman. Anyway, not getting into that. Uh, <laughs> as an autistic femme. Uh yes. Uh it it boggles my mind the idea of believing that you are infallible or, or untouchable, that you are beyond any sort of repercussion because it's, it is such a, it's one of the, I understand it in theory, but I just, it's another world to me. I don't understand it. I'm the kind of person that can't, that I don't do a lot of rule breaking, even if, you know, I'm not saying you should, you know what I mean. But because if I do, I will get caught. Yeah. It, it's one of those things where, okay, so I live in a little tiny town where it's dead at 9 p.m. There's no one around. If I ran a red light, even though no one around, a cop would physically just pop out of thin air to arrest me. Like, that's the kind of world I live in. <laughs> so it's not, I'm exaggerating to make a point, but... Sure. It's it's just it's interesting. I cannot fathom what that's like. And it's just Well, it's it's the mindset you get as a result of the whole world being for you. And for you personally, the whole world is not for you. So that's why it's so <laughs> difficult to understand. But it is it's it's the worldview of being someone for whom the entire filthy blood-covered pyramid of capitalism and human civilization they're at the very top of it or just a little bit down from the top of it enough that there's that they really can't tell the difference you know and that's what it is is that so close to the top that they get confused and get in trouble because they don't realize the, that they're not as high yeah. as they think and it's some it's that's what it is the entire world is for them and so it is impossible for them to imagine facing any consequences because you know how can you when there's so much below you and it's only a little bit above you man if only there was a, a way to you know make people drop down some pegs but you know even the field i've got a lengthy comment that would have to be removed <laughs> from the recording anyway so i guess the last thing to cover with the episode itself is just like the final final thing for the next episode yeah. The cliffhanger. Yeah, where they, they find out that O'Brien and uh, Kira are talking on the Defiant about how there's no nobody else from Starfleet anywhere that they're able to talk to or get a hold of. And that it seems... Yeah, they all just blinked yeah, out. Starfleet well, itself does not exist. And the only close people are Romulans. Well, we, we also haven't gotten to why. I don't think we really laid out. Yeah, one. it's because... Gabriel Bell, who's the great person of history here, dies helping someone else out. And then Cisco, because of the importance of Gabriel Bell, steps up and announces that he is Gabriel Bell. Which, you know, it's 2024 is not too far from now. I wouldn't be surprised if a bunch of white people couldn't tell the difference between two black guys who don't look anything alike. Yeah. Well, Real quick, so the uh, the group of ghosts that do the stabbing of Bell, they're they're mugging a dude, and then they mug Bashir and Cisco, and then Bell shows up to help, and um, 
lead dude wearing a hat pulls a knife and kills yeah. bell um these are the same this is the same group that bashir and cisco run into at the very beginning where probably they would have just gotten rolled for their their clothes and, yeah. and ration card but anyway yeah well they had they had to establish the character in his jaunty style i mean i do that is the only thing that really like makes the the <laughs> random like street gang crowd tolerable is the fact that their leader is so uh so like eloquent and precise in yeah. diction I feel like he's going to start snapping and breaking into song at any moment. You got a problem? No problem. You look upset. If we've done anything to offend you, please let us know so that we can be sure not to do it again. Don't worry about us. We're new here. Really? I never would have guessed. <laughs> but let me be the first to welcome you. Would you like a piece of this? No, thanks. Dimmies. No sense of fun. Yeah. We're just looking for a place to sleep. Well, in that case, you better look somewhere else, new boy. You heard what he said. Let's go. Enjoy your stay. And in a few days, I know you're going to feel right at home. <laughs> Bye. I, it really, like, it feels like the actor wants to, really. <laughs> and, like, I kind of, after we record, I might look at, look up and see if he did anything else. Because it's actually really good. Yeah. And, yeah, they're the same people who have the guns and break into the, uh, the uh, take hostages. Already have hostages when everyone shows up. Well, these, so right, the, they're the, yeah, these are the bad guys because they're the violent anarchists. Right. Well, so the idea is that what should have happened if Bell hadn't gotten stabbed is that these people did that anyway. And then Bell, like he came in to interfere with this one fight and got knifed for it. He wanders into this, this scene and I guess grabs a gun and is allowed to participate the same way that the leader just yep. let Cisco show up with a shotgun and an extra hostage. Yep. They're like, oh, okay, yeah, I know we were giving you all a hard time a little bit ago, but I do want to say that every time gang leader calls Avery Brooks boy, like my yeah. entire body shivers. Yeah, very. I don't know. Cringy. I just want to point out that there's no way Avery Brooks wouldn't have let them know what was up. So that's intentional, and Avery Brooks is going along with it. So it's an intentional part of the framing. Yeah. This is the only reference to actual racism we have anywhere in the uh, in the show, in this yeah. episode. Yeah, I feel like it is very intentional, and it, it definitely definitely had me cringing too. So. And Cisco is getting like Cisco gets angry every mm. time he says it, which is most likely like that's why in character the character keeps doing it because it's clearly getting under his yeah. skin. So, yeah. Um. So I think that about wraps up the future tense or past god damn it past tense future uh, tense past past future tense well, so there is another episode of star trek called future tense and it's in M enterprise hopefully they don't go back and interfere with the bell riots or the the march on washington for positive change whichever of those is the watershed uh, the march on oh, so quick trivia about me um i also i attended the rally to restore sanity because my ex-wife me too because at the time i wasn't alive we were both there at the same time 
Jesus Christ, yeah. really? Uh, did you see? <laughs> so was Jack. Oh, wow. oh Jack I got to tell him. I think I still have the commemorative hand towel somewhere. I got Rick rolled in person by a Rick Astley impersonator. That's amazing. And I split a beer with Jesus. I was there in a uh, Star Trek uniform, and my wife was in one too. <laughs> oh. And we actually got interviewed by somebody. And <laughs> yeah, that was. I had a sign that said "Drill here, drill now for dilithium." That was <laughs> that experience oh. and that whole event is the high water mark for progressive, like feel good, ultimately ineffective liberalism. It is. Oh, that was definitely in my life. Well, in my life, that was like my realization of, oh, they're not going to do anything. No one's going to do anything. Oh. Yeah. It, I might have still been in high school. Oh, don't be so young. <laughs> I don't remember. Oh, this was in what, 2011? Oh, I would have uh, graduated being... I, a think it was er no no it was earlier i know it was early i know exactly yeah, I when it was school. i know exactly when it was it was in 2010 before the 2010 midterm elections when the tea party swept into control of the house because it was early in the obama presidency and the Tea Party had like come around and was everyone, no one was taking them seriously. They were, just, you know, jokes and trolling them and stuff. And we we're like, there's no way that, you know, these people could possibly achieve anything. But it's all so silly and it's all so disreputable and, you know, low class. We're going to have to laugh at them. You know, that's what we can do is we can be right and funny and have a better argument and we'll be able to change the world that way. And that was, you know, the way that we felt back then, which is incredibly cringy. And there's a bit in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas where uh, Hunter S. Thompson describes being in San Francisco at like the height of flower power, basically, and how he thought that, you know, we could never lose. And he says, we had all the momentum. We were riding the crest of a high and beautiful wave. So now, less than five years later, you can go up on a steep hill in Las Vegas and look west. And with the right kind of eyes, you can almost see the high water mark, the place where the wave finally broke and rolled back. And the rally to restore sanity and or fear was that point for progressive liberalism, the kind that really came into its own during the Bush era, like after the Iraq invasion and took the house in 2006 and then was completely out of any sort of significant power by the 2010 midterms, you know, that daily show smug, smiling liberalness where, you know, you had the right idea on a lot of things, but you were not there yet and you know now we can look back at that and see that was the high water mark and after that everybody a lot of the people who were in that kind of crowd either went to like left libertarian and then libertarian and then like gamergate and jordan peterson and ben shapiro and up their own asses and all that shit or they went the other direction and went the direction we went where you go further and further 
to the left and have a podcast or, you know, doing like food, not bomb stuff or, you know, being part of the protests and the uprisings. And, you know, that, that last, that like graduating class of progressive liberals really split into two directions. And that's the point I feel like where it happened. Yeah. I mean, you are really describing sort of like the high water mark of real world effectiveness of, of West wing brain politics, not peak West wing brain. I'd argue we are getting into that now because we're just going to continue quadrupling down onto like started like inviting the Republicans to a movie night or whatever. But yeah, definitely like you could get 200,000 people to go to DC for a comedy event because everybody thought that if we just all got together, we could do something. Yep. Which, like, we could have. There were a lot of us Go- there. Going back to that Hunter S. Thompson quote, that, I think, was the handle. That sense of inevitable victory over the forces of old and evil, not in any mean or military sense, we didn't need that. Our energy would simply prevail. There was no point in fighting on our side or, our, or theirs. We had all the momentum. And it was that same mindset repeated, you know, a couple, a few decades later in 2010. Where they didn't, you they thought back then. All I thought back then, all you had to do was vote, and fundamentally, over time, justice would be achieved. Well, We're ready to vote right now if yeah. we could. I think it's a good example that while, as we've mentioned earlier, you do need you know the social and the social movement. You also need the movement in the social movement. <laughs> you do need yeah. both. Well. So a thing about so a thing about Star Trek is that it doesn't have a commentary really on atomization. And in fact, the characters, um, whether they're on a ship or they're on Deep Space Nine, they uh, they live in basically sort of like suburban esque atomization conditions with like their personal quarters and whatnot, which like obviously would be important on a long term spaceship journey. But there's um, there's not a focus uh, like the. The next generation has, uh, they have a, a recreational set, a uh, permanent set built in the 10 forward lounge, but it's a bar. It's not, it's not like a big recreational deck. Um, I am drawn back to uh, the Star Trek trade paperbacks before the next generation came out. There was a whole, there was a whole, between a bunch of authors, there was sort of like a, a shared creative uh, universe they had going on. And there was a, there was a shared set of characters that worked on the recreation deck in the Enterprise. And it was like, it's. The recreation deck is like it's this one enormous cavernous space and then there's also a soccer field and a bowling alley and then there's um there's a space that acts as a park it's like this distributed network actually throughout the entire ship and it has a staff that takes care of it i always wanted more of that in star trek and it's like it's the most obvious thing i can't believe i never thought of it before that it's specifically like i said when i started talking that it doesn't grapple with atomization really at all at all at all it doesn't seem to be aware of it doesn't have a solution for it except in like the generic message of sort of like the solidarity and togetherness of the crew yeah people are very much isolated to themselves i I do see that throughout star trek but anyway so yeah that is uh that's the episode and we were definitely we're going to be talking more about this next week i think we might have kept this one down to an hour and a half i think our other one got up to two hours solid we'll see what happens on this one after editing yay for me i think that 
there might be more to talk about with the next episode when things get pretty spicy. Yeah, if, you know, we may want to just find an point in time and split this episode up and combine that with the other episode, something like that. Who knows? We'll look at it. But yeah, that's uh, that's the show. Uh, real fast, before we link the other stuff, uh, Etsy store workers are uh, striking and boycotting through April 11th and 18th, so do not buy anything from Etsy between April 11th through the 18th. That might be... Oh, that's... Hey, yeah, that'll that's now. Mm, You'll have to tweet it. Dang it, that'll you be... You gotta tweet it. Yeah, I, I did tweet right. it. That's... <laughs> but, well, in, in the future, be, be aware that Etsy people are working, so there, there are probably going to be more strikes and boycotts going forward, so be aware of those. Let's see, what else? Coolidge Corner Starbucks also won their union vote unanimously, so that is 18 out of 19 wins for Starbucks unionization. And also more uh, Amazon warehouses are talking about unionizing now. So I saw someone saying that Chris Smalls is smalls or his office or whatever had announced that at least a hundred different locations had contacted them. That is beautiful. Which I don't, I didn't even know there were that many different distribution centers. I'm, I'm and sure like there are offices and, in America. And that's one of, one of the strengths that they've got is in unionizing is that because like one of the, a lot, there's a lot of conservatives after the store or after the uh, warehouse unionized that said, Oh, well now Amazon's just going to pack up and go to Texas. Uh, less union friendly yeah, environment. Well, and, that's the thing to have the delivery time that Amazon wants to have. That means that you have to be distributed all over the entire country and there's nowhere you can go to not have to deal with, you know, at least a union somewhere. So I think there is a very good chance that it's, it's going to work on a broader scale even. Yeah, no, that's, even more like encouraging and inspiring than the Starbucks thing, which already is a pretty big deal, yeah. is getting the Staten Island facility completely unionized. Yeah. yeah, and Oklahoma is working on it too. And Oklahoma is also a, just a horrible place to try and unionize. So yeah. it's it's a pretty big thing to get a union here. Uh, the Bessemer uh, election is being redone as well. Yeah. And there's now an established and like established and operating and recognized union to help support nice. that process. And that's and that's the thing because like when these problems in the locations originally arise, it is possible and has been done in the past for management to buy everybody off, to make conditions a little bit better but not as good as they'd be under a union. And there's just no willingness to do that anymore and instead they're fighting they're trying to keep from giving anybody anything and they're fighting it so hard. And the thing is because they're not giving anybody anything and they're not making anything better, the material conditions that create the union never change. And they're just making people better and better at picking up when a place is trying to shut down a union drive and having resiliency for dealing with the kind of threats and tactics that management will use and, you know, finding new ways to approach and deal with the problems that they're having in this union drive. You know, the Amazon and Starbucks in particular as examples of this, what they're doing is they're leveling up the labor workforce because <laughs> you don't get like in, you know, 
in any RPG, you don't get stronger without getting experience points. And that's based off of, you know, the learning process you have during real life. It's, you know, these, these people are getting the experience and you're having hundreds of experienced labor organizers now because there's no other option yes. for survival that they've been left with. And so it's, you know, Hey, you know, I can either, you know, learn how to organize and fight management or I could die. You know, So they have every incentive to learn how to beat them. And the companies are giving them plenty of practice in what the fights are going to be and what the fights are like. So it is ultimately, and that's something that gives me a little bit of hope for the future because it is ultimately such a self-defeating thing. Like it's not even really possible for them to win in the long run. We've been doing raid wipes for what? Exactly. It's like, it's like when you're learning years. a fight in, you know, World of Warcraft or something. Yeah. We're doing raid wipes. We have to, yeah. when you have these losses, they give you the knowledge to do better the next time around. So uh, the cool thing is now uh, raids and stuff in Final Fantasy fourteen trials, extreme trials, savage. Yeah. God, get with it. <laughs> I have not seen any of it yet, but I'm very far behind in Final Fantasy. Well, the important part is, in my metaphor, now a couple of guilds have got the boss cleared, but nobody's got it on the yeah. farm yet. They're yeah, they're posting yeah. their like playthrough and strategy videos online, and like raid planners and other guilds are watching the videos so that they can learn the fights and practice them. Yeah, it is. Fuck, it's yeah, it's snacks from us all over again. Only for a while. Nerds! Please, please never say I that. I cannot again. get out. The way is shut. Horsemen, horsemen in the deep. I don't like this. <laughs> please let me go. Okay, so pluggables now. <laughs> um. Yes, I'm from. I'm one half of uh, Tech Believe, a uh, podcast that has teleported behind you and stabbed you in the back. Um, we recently released an episode where we started talking about the Matrix and then got stuck talking about the end of the world. And we're about to start. We're going to do a couple more special episodes and start our second season over the next couple of months. Uh, we have a Twitter account, which is at tech underscore believe. You can find mostly me there posting response images to things. But I do announce episodes. Yeah. Go on our Twitter. It's uh, H-E-G-E-P-O-D uh, at Twitter. And I see on there that we have 46 followers, which I think is pretty close to our average listener base, too. So it is very possible that if you're listening to this, you're already following us on Twitter. And in that case, congratulations. <laughs> Good for you. Thank you. We appreciate yep. everything. Uh, keep the uh, If you like the show, be sure to share it in your discords, to your social groups or whatever. If you have a specific episode that you like or something you're talking about, or, you know, if we make a point that you find that's helpful in a discussion with somebody else, anything like that, feel free to share around the show and uh, maybe get some other people listening to it, kind of building up the base. Uh, we do have a Patreon. It's uh, patreon.com slash H-E-G-E-P-O-D. And we have a Gmail account. If you want to send us any uh, suggestions or have any questions or criticisms for us, that is H-E-G-E-P-O-D at gmail.com. Uh, so, yeah. I think that is about it. We will see you all next week when we talk about the next episode of Past Tense. It'll be Past Tense Part 2. Bye. Bye. Love and solidarity. Bye.